Thank you, Greg. Um, if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to find Luke chapter 20. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you today or on your phone, it's all right. The words will be up, up on the screen here in just a moment for the passage we're going to look at today. We, um, we're currently in a series of the Gospel of Luke uh, to learn what Jesus was teaching about. Oh, and he was... Um, on earth, we, um, one thing that we have found over and over again is that he was often speaking about the kingdom of God. That, that's the phrase that keeps popping up again and again in the Gospel of Luke, is that he seemed to be wanting to draw people's attention to what he called the kingdom of God. And um, we've been reminding ourselves all the way through the book as we've made it up to chapter 20 now, um, what exactly the kingdom of God is, because it is one of those phrases that can get tossed around in church and Christian circles without anyone really even understanding exactly what, what that means. So we've been reminding ourselves that the kingdom of God, very simply, and this just, this just makes sense, the kingdom of God is the realm in which God is reigning. That's what it means like be a king and have a kingdom. There's a realm in which one is reigning. And so the kingdom of God is just the realm in which God is reigning. Now, the unique thing about the kingdom of God is that it has past, present, and future forms. So it gets a little tricky to sort out in our minds what exactly is this because it looked one way in the past It looks another way in the present, and then it will look yet a a different way in the future. In the past, on this earth, the past form, the past manifestation of the kingdom of God, the realm in which God was reigning, was the person of Jesus Christ himself. Think about it. He was, his body, his temple was the realm in which God was reigning. At present, the kingdom of God, the realm in which God is reigning, is the Christian. And corporately, it's the church. God is reigning in us. Peace and righteousness exist here in the Christian. And as we go into the world, and as we walk through this world, we take the kingdom of God with us. In the future, the kingdom of God will be present on this earth in its fullness when Jesus himself returns. That's when the kingdom of God will reach its consummation and it will spread over the whole earth. That peace and righteousness that existed in Jesus and now exists in us, it will cover the entire earth. So is the kingdom of God present on earth right now? Yes, but not in its fullness. It's present in the Christian, and the kingdom grows as people enter the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ and become disciples of Jesus Christ. So we wait and pray for the return of Jesus. That's our prayer. That's the disciples' prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. That future kingdom, what that kingdom will be like in the future, that future day, when peace and righteousness reign on earth as Jesus rules, that's actually going to be our focus today, like the afterlife. A lot of our focus to this point has been like our present lives, what it looks like to be a faithful disciple right now. Today we see Jesus talking about the future. He's talking about the afterlife, what life is like in that future kingdom that's going to be referred to here as the resurrection.
We're going to learn some interesting things about what life is like in the resurrection. Um, if you are in the room and you um, or joining us online and you don't believe in the afterlife, if you think that's silly, um, if you think that, you know, hey, we die and that's just it. When we die, we die and life is over. I think you will be very interested in this passage because the people who come and ask Jesus a question agree with you. They did not believe in the afterlife either. That, that was their perspective. When we die, we die, and that's all there is. So we get to see how Jesus is going to respond to that question. And in the process, what he teaches us about God and what it means for you. All right? So we're going to start in chapter 27. We're in Luke 20, and we'll read through um, verse 40. If you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand uh, for the reading of the word. Luke twenty twenty seven. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. After the, afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Father, we invite your son to be our teacher, uh, to correct our hearts where they need to be corrected, uh, to open up the treasures of the wisdom of the knowledge of God to us today. We wait eagerly, and we wait in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. So really, there's just two things that happen here. There's a part A and a part B. Part A is simply Jesus answering their question. Isn't that great that he actually does answer the question? Sometimes we leave a scenario with a question and an answer when Jesus is talking, and we're not sure if the actual question has been answered. This time, um, They're given a solid answer to their question. That's part A. He answers their question. Part B begins at verse 37 where he goes further and he addresses their underlying problem. The problem that leads them to ask the question in the first place. So I think both of these things are really helpful. It's convenient that they got an answer to their question. It it tells us some interesting things about the resurrection. And it's also helpful that he goes after their fundamental problem of not believing in the afterlife. And it's revealed that they don't actually understand who God is. 
So he goes to work at that deeper level too. So we'll, we'll just observe part A, we'll observe part B, we'll take what we can from them, and then we'll be done. So in part A, Jesus um, addresses their question. We're told up front, this party, this little group of people, however big it was, came to him, and they're members of this um, faction, this religious faction of the people called the Sadducees. They, you may have heard of the Pharisees. We talk more about the Pharisees, but they're a, um, likewise a, a group or a faction of the religious ruling class. The Sadducees were different from the Pharisees in some important respects. One huge way that they were different, the one that's mentioned here, is that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the afterlife. The Pharisees do. They teach that. Jesus believes that. He teaches that. The resurrection, that the just would rise from the dead and live with God forever. The Sadducees, they don't believe that. So when this little group comes to Jesus, they're eager to show the absurdity of the resurrection. How it just doesn't make any sense. This idea of an afterlife in the kingdom of God where the the righteous live and worship. The the Sadducees were rationalistic. They tended to be very wealthy. And they just just didn't believe this stuff, right? And that may be where you're at too. So they come to Jesus with their question. And here's their strategy. And it's, it's very similar. Have you ever been asked this question by someone who doesn't believe in God or someone who's just trying to give you a hard time, they know you're a Christian, they'll come up to you and say something like, do you believe that God can do anything? You'll say, yes, of course I do. God can do anything. So their very next question is, well, can God create a rock that's so big that he can't move it? And they think, they got you, right? You just show, if you say, yes, God can do anything, they'll say, well, he can't do that. He can't create a rock so big that he can't move it. See, That's the kind of thing that they're trying to do to Jesus, present an absurd scenario to try to get him to undermine his foundational beliefs about God. They think they'll force him to admit that the idea of a resurrection from the dead just is not realistic because it can't handle the complex nature of human relationships and the realities of life. Like, what if this happens in life? See, it wouldn't make any sense in the resurrection. Therefore, the resurrection must not exist. Such as this case of a woman being the wife of seven different men. They all die, no children, so who will she belong to? The first one? He would seem to have a right to that. What about the last one? He would seem to have a right to that as well. Well, what about one of the ones in the middle? Well, what about all of them? So they put that question to Jesus, and now if he can't give a satisfying answer, and they're pretty sure there isn't a satisfying answer, and if he can't give an answer that satisfies in front of the people that are gathered around and listening, then the the whole idea of the resurrection will just lose clout, and it will be a win for them politically. So they think they've got him, but they don't. Jesus gives his answer beginning in verse 34, and let's look at his argument. Here's his argument. There is no human marriage in the resurrection because there is no death in the resurrection. That, that's his main point, that there is No human marriage in the resurrection, in the afterlife, because there's no death in the resurrection. Look look again at the text if you've got a copy in front of you, verse 34. 
and just trace his argument. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, right? That happens in this life. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage for, and that's the key word for, and the force of the word is because, for or because they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels, just meaning immortality, and are sons of God, also meaning immortality. So why no marriage? Because they cannot die anymore. There's no human marriage in heaven because there's no death in heaven. Now, this, this might be the first time you have ever heard this or been taught this about marriage. Right? A lot of you right now are thinking about your own marriage, thinking, my goodness, what are you saying about heaven and the afterlife? Like, I'm not going to be married to my spouse anymore? Yes. That's exactly the point. I, I think just at this point... A lot of preachers, and probably better preachers, would be willing to make a joke and say something about, like, you know, being free of that condition, and wow, won't my wife be happy about that? I don't think it's funny. That's just me. I am not tempted to joke about this at all, because I love my wife, and because I know people, people very close to me, family and friends, and you do too, and you're maybe one of them, who have lost your spouse to death, and you can't wait to be reunited with them. And when you hear there's no marriage in heaven, that, that's just not a fun thought for you. And there may not seem to be a good reason why it should be so. Like, why would God create the afterlife like that with no marriage, even among people who have been married in this life. So I want to just take about five minutes and try to answer that question based on the scriptures. Why no marriage in heaven? Just two thoughts for you, two things from the scriptures. Number one, why no marriage in heaven? Because first of all, reproduction is not necessary in a state where there is no death. In this life, right now, where death is a reality, human reproduction is necessary if life is going to continue. It is one of God's stated purposes for bringing a man and a woman together in marriage is reproduction. That's Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. There are exceptions to that. Not every marriage will display that. There are legitimate exceptions to that. But it is a stated purpose of God, nevertheless. But in a world where there is no death, where we cannot die anymore, reproduction is not a necessity. That's one reason why there is no marriage in heaven. Here's a second one. Picturing the relationship between Christ and the church is not necessary in a state where Christ and his bride are together. Human marriage is designed to picture the relationship between Christ and the church, his bride. That's Ephesians 5. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. The the wife is to honor her husband as the church honors Christ. Again, that doesn't happen in every marriage. There are reasons why that that doesn't always paint a, a faithful picture of Christ and the church and the way those 
dynamics work in a marriage, but that is God's stated purpose, that marriage will picture Jesus Christ and his church, like the covenant promise that exists between Christ and the church, husband and wife, the mutual enjoyment of each other between Christ and the church, husband and wife, the mutual love for each other, Christ and his church, husband and wife, friendship, fellowship. That is one of God's stated purposes for marriage. It pictures for us in this life, we can see a picture of the indestructible love between Christ and his church. And just as reproduction becomes unnecessary in a world where there is no death, picturing or approximating the relationship between Christ and the church is not necessary in a state where Christ and his bride are together. It's untrue to say there is no marriage in heaven. The true thing to say, the proper thing to say, is there is no human marriage in heaven. Marriage does exist in the resurrection. It's just that there's one great marriage of which every believer is a part. The union of Christ and his bride. Every Christian is a member of his bride. We're all members of that one great marriage. Think about the significance of this. In the resurrection, we will not be married to another human. If we were married in this life, that condition will not exist in heaven. Rather, we will be individuals, in a sense, but we will be one collective, in a sense. You will be Joe or Megan, the individual, but also Joe or Megan, a part of the one bride, an equal, full member of the bride, sharing the same characteristics as the rest of the bride, yet you will remain an individual. That means that as that we, as the people of God, can be described as diversity within unity. All distinct, equal personalities, each one of us, each Christian, a distinct individual personality within the one bride. And in that way, as you're probably beginning to realize, in that way, we will together be the image of God that we were created to be. That's who God is. God is diversity within unity. Three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in power, in glory, in holiness, equal in every way, but they share one essence. There is one God, one God existing eternally in three equal persons, sharing one essence. That's God. That's who God is. And this God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And what we're noticing today as we see marriage fade out of existence, 
in the resurrection is that in the resurrection, we will fully bear the image of God corporately as we exist in the resurrection as equal individuals within the one bride without the presence of sin. That's who God is. Equal individuals within the one Godhead without the presence of sin. That's who we will be. Equal individuals in the one bride without the presence of sin. And it's true to say that this is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17, the high priestly prayer. This, this is his prayer, that they may be one even as we are one. That was his prayer, that we in our relationships would be one individuals within the one unity just as God is one. And we look around and say, boy, that doesn't seem to be happening. Why isn't Jesus' prayer being answered? Like he prayed for unity. We're not, we don't seem united at all. Why isn't his prayer being answered? It will be. It will be. That is what we will be in the resurrection. Individuals as all part of the one bride. Some of you are old enough or some of you are hip enough to remember you too. And you remember Bono and they're still around. And you remember 1987 and the Joshua Tree. And you remember track two. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And boy, that song got got them in hot water because Christians thought U2 is a Christian band. They're like our people. They're seeing Christian stuff, but it's undercover because no one knows it's Christian, but they're playing our message. And then they sing that. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. What does that mean? What does it mean for a Christian to say that? That doesn't sound very Christian. They were wrestling with this dynamic that Jesus prayed for us to be one and be united And we approximate that now, but it's really not like that at all. We're waiting for something else. We're waiting for the day when in truth, we are one. And there's not the presence of sin anymore in our relationships. That's what destroys everything. Sin still weighs us down. It disrupts our relationships. But there will be a day when we will fully bear the image of God and be truly one, yet remaining individuals in the resurrection. That's the thing we're looking for. We journey on toward it. We do the best we can now to be united, one in the faith, by the Spirit. And how much good practice and good works would result of just knowing that that's our future. Where distinctions between us as far as power and everything else that divides us will be gone. And we will be one, united in Christ, one truly, bearing the image of God corporately, as we do now individually. Part A is Jesus addressing their question. Question not valid because there's no human marriage in heaven. Not bad, huh? Invalidated their question. But then he goes to work on their deeper problem. They, they weren't expecting this. They weren't expecting him to, to dive deeper and, and really dig into their underlying beliefs, but that's what he does at the end. He addresses their underlying problem, this group that doesn't believe in the resurrection, in the afterlife. They, they don't see how absolutely necessary and logical the resurrection is in light of who God is. 
In light of who God is, the resurrection is absolutely necessary and completely logical. In Exodus 3, this is the passage that Jesus says in the, don't you love that? The passage about the bush, (laughs) Jesus just takes a shorthand. I love that. We don't see things like that from him very often. But he says, in the passage about the bush, God reveals himself as I am. He doesn't mention that part here, but in that same passage, God reveals his name as I am. Moses asked God, you know, if I go to the people and they wonder, what is the name of this God? Tell them I am sent you. And God chose that name for himself because it gets at his most fundamental quality. that He is the one who exists. He is the one who is. He is the one who is and who was and who always will be. He is the great uncaused cause. He is the one from whom all life is derived and who doesn't derive his life from anything or anyone else. He simply is. And he chose a name in accordance with that nature. I am. It is the nature of God to be alive and to be the source of life. The source of all life. That reality is stated at the end of verse 38, for all live to him. Now, God also referred to himself in another way in that Exodus 3 passage in the way that Jesus notes here in Luke 20. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Okay, here's the conclusion. It cannot be that the God who is fundamentally life and who fundamentally is would choose to be called by the name of dead people who will never live again. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob Died, but God was their God. And it cannot be, it is contrary to everything for God to be the God of these three and be called by their name, but have their lives pass out of existence forever. In what sense would God be their God if it was so? God's love and promises can't end with the grave. He's the great I am, the ever-living one, the all-powerful one, the one that sets his love and promises on, must live on. They absolutely must. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. I hope you can see the connection, that God, by his very nature, is the one who lives. And if he is the God of any person, that person will also live. It cannot be that they would pass from existence forever, because nothing is more anti-God than to cease to exist. So you may see the afterlife, you may see the resurrection as a foolish hope, unscientific fairy tale. You know, if there were no God, that would be true. That's true in a world where there is no God. But there is a God. And he is I am. And because he is I am, the resurrection is the most logical thing in the world. 
Of course the dead will be raised. The real illogical position is the group that claims to believe in Israel's God, the God of the Old Testament, the God who created everything from nothing. Say, yes, I believe in this God who created everything from nothing, and no, there's not a resurrection from the dead. That's the illogical position. If there is a God, of course he raises the dead. He created everything from nothing. What kind of a God would create everything from nothing and let everything die? That's the real illogical position. To see an all-powerful God creating who is limited by the power of the grave. That, that's the thing that cannot be. He is the God of life, creator of life, giver of life, and sustainer of life. That's who God is. Now, what does all this mean for you today? Because um, it would be easy to look at a passage like this and say, well, this is... This is like all about the future. That's really nice, but it doesn't help me today. The wonderful thing is that that's not the way that it is. The eternal life that Jesus offers bears its full fruit in the resurrection, but it begins now. The life that Jesus gives you when you turn from yourself and from your ways and trust him is a a right now new life. Jesus changes lives now. Jesus breaks addiction now. Jesus heals marriages now. Jesus changes tastes now. Jesus gives meaning and direction to life right now, and his direction is always the same. Follow me. Give your whole life to me. And in return, I give you true life. That's the gospel trade-off. We give our lives to him. In return, he gives us a new life and a new identity, a new community, and a life that will never end. So Jesus invites you to follow him today. It will cost you everything. It will cost you everything to follow him. You have to be willing to lay down your own moral code, your own right to yourself, what you think is right and wrong, your own idols. You give up everything. The first and only step is self-denial. You have to enter his kingdom. This is what he said. You have to enter his kingdom as a little child would enter. Complete dependence and trust. And you will live. That's the promise. There is no true life or lasting life apart from Jesus. There is no true life or lasting life apart from Jesus. How do we know? What's so special about him? How do we know we can trust his promise to give us life and give up everything to follow him? What's so special about him? He died in love for you and was buried for three days and rose again bodily, defeating death. He is the death defeater. That's how we know that he's the life giver. That's why he can give you life, because he's already defeated death. He's proved it. Go to him. Give him your life. He gives you a life that cannot end. It's free, and it's for you. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, we glorify and we praise this beautiful son of yours.
who promises to give us life. Thank you that he has given us life. So many of us in this room just thank you for the ways as we look back that Jesus has changed us and we're not the same person that we used to be. I praise your name for that personally, that you have changed me and that you are changing me. And so many in this room say amen and thank you for the way that they have seen you work and heal and bring abundant life where there was only deadness. And so today we pray for even more changed lives in this room who are willing to say for the first time, I'm at the end of myself. I've tried everything in the book. I can't find meaning anywhere. The places I've tried to find life and meaning have not satisfied me. And now at the end, I pray, Father, that they would turn their eyes to Jesus, receive the true life that comes from him, give up their ways, and begin to follow how we love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.